Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Greetings, salutations, and an excited hello to all of my unlucky lounge rats joining us and tuning in for another episode of Draft and Draft. My name is Corey, your limited lore master, denizen of the unlucky lounge in historic Monoscrew Manor, and joining us, as always, behind the bar, this dude is definitely always a bearer of good news. He's our bear tender, Borok. Borok, dude! It is time for another very special moment in magic history. <laughs> yes, sir, E-Bob, we are on the eve of spoiler season for the next coming set of Zendikar Rising. And of course, with a new set comes a new teaser from the man himself, Mr. Mark Rosewater. And we are here to put on our detective caps and unfurl some riddles that he posed on one of his latest blog atog posts. But before we get to that, few bits of housekeeping as always this podcast is brought to you by the believe podcast network check them out bleav.com at their website stitcher apple podcast wherever you download your audio goodness and as always this podcast is made for all of my lovers of mana all of my travelers across the plains all of you my lucky lounge rats so get into the lounge rat nation by following me on twitter at draft and draft Corey. You can find me on Instagram at Corey Demone Enriquez or consider joining our Patreon at Draft and Draft, an MTG podcast. And yes, you can help us keep the lights on here in the Unlucky Lounge. Well, the housekeeping is done. The sorcerer's broom is put back into the conjurer's closet. And it's time for us to get to the matter at hand. And that is to take some of those tantalizing secrets that Mark Rosewater posted on his blog atog, Zendikar Rising Teaser and see if maybe we can ascertain some, well, thoughts on the next set. What cool cards might we find, and what mechanics might come out from it. And Borok, we have done this now for Ikoria and for M21. Our last episode with M21, of course, being with the amazing Galia of the Endless Dance and Zbex. And today we get to go back into Mysteryville, USA. <laughs> Yeah, I certainly miss her as well, but, you know, Galia did a real number on me, and I'm still kind of sore from the last teaser season, so it's going to be you and me, buddy, putting on those detective hats and figuring out some tantalizing teasers from Mr. Mark Rosewater himself. So what do you say, Borak? Let's get into the action. You know something? not a bad idea. Let's start this episode off with our classic, our old tradition. Wherever you are, friends, take a second to celebrate yourselves, grab a drink, sit back, relax, and let's have ourselves an untapped step. Ah. You know what that tastes like, Borok? That tastes like some mystery solved. <laughs> Come on, I'm not ahead of myself. I'm just confident. So let's get that film noir music rolling, put on those detective hats, and let's unravel 
some tantalizing takes from the teaser for Zendikar Rising. It was a terribly uneventful Thursday. A day by any other name you might call Thursday. When across my desk seemed to venture an inauspicious post by a one Mr. Mark Rosewater giving us some little carrot dangles on the upcoming set known as Zendikar Rising. Yes, Borak, I'm going to do the accent again. It's about storytelling, creating a universe, making it spooky and mysterious and... and film noir-y. Yes, I know that noari isn't a word. Just, just let me do the thing, okay? Okay, fine. You don't have to do the accent. Anyway, where was I? Oh, yeah. The post mysteriously came across my internet search history. And I knew that this pretty little dame of a teaser was begging to be solved. But more than most, this one drew a lot of attention from not just the enfranchised players, but a lot of the community at large. Zendikar is well known for many things over the two different times that we have visited it throughout the history of the game. The first time brought to us the elusive, the cunning, the absolutely expensive enemy fetch lands. Cards that individually fetch quite the pretty penny on the open market. But back in the day, you could sell a Marsh Flats for $10 and get a good pastrami on rye from the corner shop when yours truly was still a broke college student trying to make ends meet. Do I regret it now? Sure, Borak. But when you're a hungry young kid out on his very onesies in the early days of your 20s and you could sell a piece of cardboard for 10 candy bars from your local game shop, well, that certainly seems like quite the good sell. Not only is Zendikar known for iconic fetch lands, man lands, and more, it's also known for being the set that propagated some very exclusive print-run cards, ones like the Expedition Cycle that started in the original BFC, but even more than that, if you've been around the block a few times like I have, you'll remember going to the original Zendikar pre-release and opening first print-run booster packs of the set to find iconic drops like Dual Lands, Candelabras of Thanos, old vintage staples that were randomly seeded one card per three cases or something of the like. Zendikar is known for its hidden treasures and its exclusively small print run things that you could randomly find by opening up any booster pack in those very iconic times. It's not outside the realm of possibilities for a a good detective like myself to ascertain that the new printing of Zendikar Rising might come with some little special rare beauty that could be randomly put in some of these booster packs in the near future. Sadly no, Borak. I never did open one of those exclusive bits of treasure that you could find in the original Zendikar boxes. Lady Luck, well she's quite a fickle little lady to me. And I don't always get the good roll of the dice, but I'll tell you what, 
we have fun along the way no matter what. And, quite frankly, let's face it, Mark Rosewater and many others from R&D have stated that this new Zendikar set is going to be less about the Eldrazi and more about the adventure world that they originally created in the first go-around with Zendikar, going through the jungles, finding yourself on fancy expeditions, feeling like you're Indiana Jones but in a plane with a lot more dangerous random things, and islands that look gorgeous with the bowl pouring out water in the full art lands in that original Zendikar. Mwah! Capiche, just so gorgeous, paisanos. But we're not here to talk about the treasure cards, the elusive expeditions and masterpiece series. No, we're here to talk about some of the mysteries that Mr. Mark Rosewater dropped down on all of his attentive listeners. So, without any further ado, in no particular order, Let's go ahead and lay out our five predictions for what we might expect to see based off of the Zendikar Rising teaser post on the blog talk from Morrow himself. Clue number one. Lands that come with a choice that you have never had before. Now, of course, we know that this little hint of an important land function is clearly alluding to the fact that Zendikar has a very strong affiliation with the landfall mechanic. For those of you who don't remember, landfall is a reminder keyword that triggers a creature or maybe even any permanent's ability when a land enters the battlefield under your control. It's too popular of a mechanic in almost every format for it not to be back in some shape or form. And so these lands are probably quite splashy. And this clue about a never-before option on a land, this tells us that we're more than likely to see more land effects in Zendikar Rising. However, I would not be surprised to see that landfall might have a reduced workload because common triggers well, they need to be very careful you do not have to look very far to get this evidence for the statement take a look at step links and play the geopeer two scourges of the original zendikar set landfall triggers on creatures that give them plus two plus two a two three maybe even a four five on a one white mana creature play the GOP that one one with first strike absurd gameplay comes when you have unbalanced common based landfall mechanics now when they went back to bfz we did see some of this landfallage we saw it tuned down and powered back but i think a lot of people can agree that the bfz set in itself was quite muddled between landfall allies the devoid mechanic with the eldrazi so while we might see landfall back, I would personally expect to see it a lot more in uncommon cycles and the few rares. Now, as for the choice we never had before, I would guess these lands might play in maybe some kind of transform mechanic. Maybe a split card, maybe a flip card from the old uh, Kamigawa set. Anything that kind of makes us reconfigure the way that we look at lands I would not be surprised to see out of this teaser. 
Now, quite frankly, there have been a few leaks already online, and as we all know, leaky faucets make bad bedfellas. So I don't necessarily subscribe to anything like this, but I wouldn't be too outside of the realm of possibilities to think that these kinds of lands, they might, well, transform. Either to one type of land on one side or another on the other side. You have to choose the trigger and the side when they enter the battlefield. Or when they maybe meet a certain condition. What if you had, for example, a forest that turns into a tri-land after you've maybe played two lands in a single turn? Who knows what these triggers will be, but we know that they can make some pretty special lands under the right conditions. Take a look at Ixalan and the enchantments that turn into some pretty crazy land effects on the other side. As long as balance is put in there, I have faith that R&D can design some cool lands with unique effects as long as they understand the balance that's required to put into them. You gotta shape your deck to meet these special triggers to transform these lands. And it's not the first time a card game has had these kind of land transforms or maybe even lands as a spell resource after a certain number of turns. Eternal did it. What if you had a land on one side and you could maybe transform it into a shock for a red land after a while when you don't need that land no more. I don't know, but I think that's a design space that they could play into and make some pretty cool creative things. Yeah, certainly I'm referring to other card games, but do you believe that Watsi isn't also looking at other card games in their market and seeing what works for them and see if they can make it work for magic? You gotta believe someone's got an eye on these things, Borak. Yeah, I mention Eternal every once in a while. I enjoyed the game, and this weekend I'm a little amped on it. They just had a cool draft championship for those who earned points over months. Something I've been asking for on Arena a few episodes back. I think that magic, look at this, look at what they're doing. It makes sense, bada bing, bada boom. I had a great time, and hey, they got a few bucks out of me, and I got no complaints, even though, well, I didn't do so good. You know what? Enough of the funny business, Borak. Let's go to clue two. Clue number two. Don't lose unspent red mana. Now, to any newcomer, you know that you lose mana in your pool as you move from phase to phase. And this clue is clearly referring to this part of Magic the Gathering. But this text is also quite reminiscent of the original Zendikar Black. You see, it goes back to a central elemental figure from this plane, a little creature known as Amnath. You see, in his original printing, Mr. Amnath had the text that you don't lose green mana that's in your mana pool. Commander players know this as one of the original powerhouse green legends. When you're able to accumulate red mana over times, it becomes quite a sticky pickle to deal with. And on top of that, you get plus one, plus one on your Omnath for each green mana in your mana pool. You could accumulate a pretty big creature quite quickly. 
make a big swing. So what if in this new set, Omnath continues his quirk of gaining new colors? Thus far, we've had three printings of Omnath. The first one was mono green. The next one was a green-red legend for seven mana. And then, in course set 20, we got a tree-color Omnath. Now, from the art on the promo for Zendikar Rising, we can see some white swirls on this card. Omnath is a boy who likes to learn. He's gaining colors every time we see him. A bit frightening, don't you say? A creature with that much power that's being unanswered could be quite the force. And maybe you picked up a thing or two along the way for red. And maybe Omnath can help you store your red mana. I don't find this to be necessarily the best of takes, since the two printings after his original did not retain this ability to retain mana over phases. So I don't think that's necessarily the best way of looking at this. But let's continue to dive a little bit deeper. Red's very good at getting temporary mana. So I believe that this is a pretty explored space, but in a way that we're reconfiguring how we're gonna be looking at this. What if during your exploration, you find little mana geodes along the way in Zendikar? These mana geodes stick with you until the end of the turn. Maybe when your creature goes exploring, you can gain mana that doesn't empty until the end of the turn. What if this could be a keyword mechanic in itself? When your creature attacks with this keyword, you gain a mana, a red mana. It goes into your pool and stays there until the end of the turn. It doesn't lose itself when you move from phase to phase. Or maybe, just maybe, the point of Zendikar as it's starting to heal from the wounds of the Eldrazi. They're starting to get back some of the elemental figureheads of the different areas. When we saw some of these big iconic elementals in Battle for Zendikar, we saw embodiments of the colors. What if the red next step of embodiment is some kind of red legendary creature? What if there's a cycle of monocolor legendary creatures that work somewhat like Praetors from New Phyrexia, but instead go to the Zendikar theming. It's got a static ability. It's got a landfall ability. It helps you do wacky and crazy things, giving more treats to some of our commander players out there. There's something very juicy about this statement, all my unlucky lounge rats. And maybe gumshoes out there, you have another idea of what this red mana can do and how it doesn't get lost. Who knows? But I look forward to seeing this little ditty unravel itself in front of us on the plane of Zendikar so soon. Clue number three stood out like a green thumb amongst all of the other clues in this teaser. That the text, Cowards Can't Block Warriors, is going to appear in Zendikar Rising. Now this coward's not being able to be blocked by warriors has been seen a few times thus far in Magic the Gathering. The most iconic original place goes all the way back to Future Sight with Bold Weir Intimidator, a big old seven drop that made creatures into cowards. 
made creatures into warriors, which made certain creatures unable to black. And it returned in Modern Horizons. This to me indicates that we're starting to explore warrior space as something original, as something unique, and something that is quite defined. And I believe that we're going to see maybe a little inkling of a warrior tribal theme in Zendikar Rising. We can already see some warrior connection on one of the big chase rares that was spoiled earlier this week, the new Nahiri. It allows you to make warrior creature tokens. One of its minus effects allows you to look for a warrior creature on the top of your deck. And you have to believe that the reason why the text itself clarifies warriors amongst equipment as well is starting to define the warrior creature type is not only important to Zendikar, but that the warrior creature type might also be quite dependent and connected with things like Voltroning and equipment. And in fact, I'm willing to bet that we might just see some more mechanically unique things in the warrior tribe coming in Zendikar Rising. In this world, I see that a warrior creature type might be more about having one big intimidating presence that is staring down its other combatants on the battlefield and making them tremor and quiver in fear, turning them into cowards, unable to black. And then maybe, just maybe, when it's equipped, it can turn another creature into a coward when it attacks. Feels like a good uncommon to print, don't you think? And compare that to the soldier creature type, where soldiers work in masses. They work in large swaths, in battalions, like the Boros Legion. The warriors are going to become different than the soldiers, in that a one strong, proud warrior can do big things on the battlefield, irregardless of other people joining him in the fight. And that his strong, big, bold effects might just be able to take down any warrior they see along the way. He or she, these warriors, are going to make these battlefields echo with courage, with truth, and other random references to instances from the original Mirrodin Plain. Why am I talking about instance from the Mirrodin Plain? Do you really want to know? Do you really want to know the conspiracy theory between connecting the echoing cycle with the warriors in the new set of Zendikar Rising? Do you think you can handle it? Do you think you can understand the deep, dark connection web of theories, the string theory that connects all of these things together? Madness! The Flat Earthers are real! The Flat Earthers are real. And there are dozens of us. Oh. Thank you, Borak. I needed that. Let's get a little too deep into character. Clue number four has to do with a statement that is alluding to a very rare specimen. A white creature that can make an opponent lose the game by simply attacking them, no matter how much life they have. Clearly, this unique creature is alluding to an alternative win condition. Let's connect back to the warrior theme from above. Large denizens, creatures, he's or she's, that are storming the battlefield with their honor, like a Klingon, noble and proud. 
coming with them, wearing their trusty machete, maybe their land-walking boots, a silk spider web. A creature enters the battlefield and attacks with all these tools of the trade. Clearly, they are creatures adept and ready to handle the wilds of Zendikar. And when you're a savvy creature with all these things ahead of you, ready to attack at the moment's notice, you best believe that they can handle anything, including winning a game all by their onesies. So what if we found ourselves with a legendary creature with an alternative win condition that utilizes that very iconic of game strategies, the Voltron strategy. A creature attacks while equipped with some equipment they get. Maybe a search counter. After a creature's gained their fifth search counter, automatically you get to win the game. You've got a warrior going into battle with you. They're equipped to the gills and ready to take care of any challenge they might find in the Royal of Zendikar. I love this idea. It plays back to the idea of the warrior game space that we talked about not too long ago. It attaches to the old idea of core being associated with equipment. You got Armament Master. You've got the Scourge of Modern, the recently unbanned. Stoneforge Mystic, all of which plays this elusive idea of a core with equipment and uses it to win the game. You put that with Nahiri, you got a chef's kiss of a game strategy. Good or not, doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. It's flavorful, makes sense in the world, and can continue to develop into the warrior gameplay space that just maybe could meet the connection between the equipment and the warriors and the core in a harmonious convergence in Zendikar Rising. Now, if we are putting the core and equipment strategies with the warrior theme, then I would not be too remiss or too outside of the world to believe that the old ally triggers from the first two Zendikar visitings, they might not appear in Zendikar Rising. Maybe we get a creature with the ally subtype, but now that the war is over with the Eldrazi, why do you need allies anymore? You don't need no allies when all you have in front of you is the unexplored country, and only brave warriors have the courage to enter into those wilds and come out a champion. So I would put some good amount of money to believe that this white creature that can make an opponent lose the game by attacking them might have something to do with an attack trigger. And hey, if it's attached to some equipment sub things too, I wouldn't be surprised. Oh, what's that, Borok? One of my predictions, you like it? A creature that makes someone lose the game by attacking them? What a novel concept, am I right? Oh, I can hear you salivating over the idea, my bad buddy. Oh, oh. Wait, no, Borok. Don't, no. What are you... No, don't... All right, Borok. He's getting a little too excited by this idea. He's starting to fight here. Put that down, Borok, before you break the whole bar. Hey, now, you best be careful, Borok, or you're gonna get someone killed at this rate. What do you mean, that's the point? 
Alright, we gotta wrap this whole thing up before things get even more out of hand. A last tantalizing bit of prose is a sentence that reads, The return of four mana symbols that have each only ever been used on two cards before. This immediately rules out many mana symbols in the past. It can't include hybrid. We've seen that many, many times on the plane of Ravnica and elsewhere. We could look at things like Phyrexian mana, but those things have already been used on more than two cards, and we all know Phyrexian mana is an absolute scourge. It's ridiculous. Two life for two mana? Come on! Who are you trying to fool here? You put that in my Zendikar, I give you cement shoes, and you take a swim in the Hudson. So what are we talking about here? Only twice has a particular mana symbol been used before, so we dig deep. We think about what kind of mana symbols have we not seen often. And then a revelation. We gotta go all the way back to a different plane. Not a Zendikar plane, but a plane of unique creatures. A creature type known as Kithkin. Fairies are there. Goblins are a muck. A muck. A muck. Elves, that's right. We're going to the plane of Lawin. And there we saw a very unique symbol. A symbol that was a colored mana, a two colorless mana. The same cycle of uncommons that had such hits as Beseech the Queen and Spectral Procession. And on top of that, each of those colors had one additional printing with this two colorless and one mana symbol printing, and that is on a little gem known as Reaper King. Reaper King had one of each of those symbols, a colored mana or two colorless mana. That's exactly two printings. Are we going to see the return of the two or the colored mana symbol in Zendikar Rising? It's possible. It fits the criteria. So then, if we're looking at a card like, say, Reaper King, what else could we do in that universe? What else could stand up to an iconic creature like Reaper King? Well, what about an elemental friend we talked about earlier? Omnath. As we said in the promo art, Omnath looks like he's picked up a thing or two along the way since we last saw him in Core Set 2020. He's gained white, so now he's got four colors. Omnath might just have, in that mana cost, two colorless and a colored symbol. And this text itself says four mana symbols that have only ever been used on two cards before. The new Omnath is looking like he's going to be red, green, blue, and white. That's four mana symbols. They've only been used two cards before if you combine them with that two colorless rider on that mana printing cost. If you ask me, all of my fellow detectives out there, this is what you call case closed. We went over a lot of stuff in very quick succession, talking about the future of magic with the coming set Zendikar Rising, but now is the time for all of you to let me know what you think. Am I full of it? 
Am I onto something? Or maybe you have a great idea of what the future has to hold for Zendikar Rising. If you have an idea, let me know on Twitter, Draft and Draft Cory, Instagram, Cory Damone Enriquez, or on Patreon at Draft and Draft, an MTG podcast. Oh, and before we wrap things up, big shout out to my friend Jesse, friend of the show and former guest from the early days who helped me come up with a lot of these mysteries and theories. Couldn't do this episode without you. Well, you know this music means that I've found the bottom of my drink, and so we've reached the end of this episode. My name is Corey, joined alongside Borok. Now go out there and make some magical memories of your own. We'll see you all real soon. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.